Thanks, Cannon and worship team. It was awesome. <clears throat> All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 103. And uh, we are going to be talking about Thanksgiving. How many of you guys know Thanksgiving's coming up? We should have a sermon on Thanksgiving, right? Um, so Thanksgiving, of course, is one of my favorite holidays. I probably say this every year. But uh, when I was in high school, my main sport was wrestling, and the first tournament <laughs> was the weekend of Thanksgiving. I mean, an absolutely horrible thing because I was always trying to lose weight so I could never eat on Thanksgiving. So I would sit at a table with everybody eating, and, and I wouldn't be able to eat. And um, so now it doesn't matter what diet I'm on. I put it on pause for Thanksgiving. And uh, Michelle tells me I put all my diets on pause way too often, uh, <laughs> which is true, I'm sure. Um, anyway, we love, uh, hey, I love Thanksgiving. And uh, our message this morning is the best kind of Thanksgiving. And the best kind of Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving that goes from your heart and that is directed at God. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, I don't know if you guys know about Thanksgiving. I'm sure you do. Y'all went to school. It depends on how long ago you went to school, though, as to what you learned about Thanksgiving. So we used to learn that uh, on, in 1621 that 90 Native Americans and 53 pilgrims who survived the trip on the May Mayflower got together in October and thanked God. For, for, their, for his provision. Now, if you go to school recently, you'll find out that the pilgrims thanked the Indians, which is not actually what happened. They thanked God. And uh, Thanksgiving was made a national holiday in, in 1863. And it was actually during the Civil War. And I think President Lincoln did that to try to be an encouragement to people that were in this terrible time. So if you have your Bibles, go to Psalm 103. It is a great psalm on Thanksgiving. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair in front of you. You could just grab that. And it's on page 594. So 594, <laughs> you'll find Psalm 103. And, uh, you know, this morning what I want to do is uh, I did do kind of a little bit of an outline on this passage, but actually what I would really like to do today is I want to just read through the passage, and I want us to think about it together. And so it is important for you to get your Bibles out and to open it up. Um, this psalm, it is Hebrew poetry, and the main concept behind Hebrew poetry is parallel ideas, where you'll, you'll make two statements that each help define the other statement. And there are other things that happen in Hebrew poetry. For example, um, in the first six verses, 11 times words end with a long I vowel. So it's the uh, E, you know, it's kind of the end of each of these words. And so like if you were reading it in Hebrew, you would hear that. And then also in the first few verses, there are, there's the word all, which is call. And that is repeated four times. So there is actually like a rhyme as you're, re as you're hearing this. There's the sounds that communicate. And one of the really awesome things is that some of the sounds and some of the words that are used at the very beginning of this psalm are also, you find those in the last few verses. So when we outline this psalm, there's a small beginning section and a small ending section, and then you have the whole middle. And within, so within that, there's a lot of things going on in there. And this is what I think is really cool, is if you read Hebrew, you would hear it. But even if you don't read Hebrew, and if you just read it in English, you can see it. You see the parallel ideas. And so as we go through this passage, I want to point some of those out to you. And I want to challenge you to think about it about this, this passage. So that's what we're going to be doing today, which is why it's good for you to get your Bibles out. And um, I want to just ask you guys to think about something for a second. And that is, um, how does thanksgiving impact your life? How does an attitude of thankfulness help? Now, what I think, I, what I think is very interesting is that even in our culture, even in, even in a culture that denies the existence of God, People can identify the value of being thankful. But it's kind of this weird thing where we just have this general feeling of thankfulness. Well, for what and to who? And uh, what we find out, though, actually, thankfulness is very good. But thankfulness is powerful when it has as its object 
God. Now, I want to just share a few things about being thankful to God. The first thing is that God deserves thankfulness. When we're thankful toward God, that's not like this generous, kind gift that we're giving God. God deserves it. Um, it says this in 1 Chronicles 16, 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God is a holy God, and, our th- and he, he, he is due our thankfulness. You know, um, the, often people don't realize this, but in Romans chapter 1, uh, we, we learn in the book of Romans, we learn the gospel, and we're going to see this in this psalm. We're going to see some really important things about this, but we realize that every person is born a sinner separated from God. And certainly people do bad things, right? I mean, we all can look around. We see it in ourselves. We see it in people. We see that people do bad things. And the Bible tells us that God's standard is perfection, which means if you ever do the slightest thing wrong, you are in serious trouble with the holy God. And there's often people, as they think about their life, they think, oh, I've done more good things than bad. That is not the way God views life. Uh, God requires absolute perfection. And the problem with that is nobody is that, right? But this is one of the things as people think about bad things, you know, murdered somebody, I stole, I lied, I did these things. Well, it's interesting because when God is talking about the fact that he is going to pour out his wrath on mankind, um, he actually lists a lack of thankfulness as a reason for his wrath being poured out. Romans chapter 1 is actually this passage about how God's going to pour out his wrath on all of mankind because they suppress the truth that they know about him. Every person knows there's a God. And people suppress that, and they just kind of have these vague ideas of, oh, there's a God out there somewhere. You know, there's a bunch of different gods. But we learn in John 14, 6, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The whole Old Testament is full of God saying, I am God, and there is no other. And so when people kind of live life with, like, these vague religious ideas, they're in trouble because God expects people to know him. He expects people to live rightly before him. And if they don't, there's lots of wrath. Okay, this is a great Thanksgiving message, right? And we're all excited about this, but actually it is great news because Jesus actually made a way to solve that problem. But look at this in Romans 1.21, it talks about how people have denied God, they've suppressed this truth that he put in their hearts. And he just says, for although they knew God, he's talking about people who say they don't believe in God. But he's saying, although they they did know God, because he wrote about himself on their heart, he says they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So think about that when you're thinking about, you know, if you're a good person or not. Every single time you wake up and look at a beautiful view, do you say, God, thank you? Um, every time you, you breathe or you live or if you get a raise at work or, or anything that good that happens in your life is your immediate reaction to say, God, thank you. Because a lack of thankfulness, we wouldn't even really consider that as bad. But a lack of thankfulness is something that God lists as a reason that he pours out his wrath on mankind. So uh, here's another one, you know, so, hey, God deserves it, God expects it, and the other thing is, it makes total sense that we would be thankful to God. Now, I want you to think about this, James chapter 1, verse 17 says, every good gift, every good gift, like, think about your life growing up as a kid, and you got good gifts at Christmas, Think about the times that you've been in need and a person in your life has reached out, cared for you, met your needs. And you just think about, oh man, I I had this amazing need and look what you did for me. Um, Every 
good gift. And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Like, think about that. When you have a need and somebody needs, meets it, it's because God has sovereignly been working in life to make sure that that person noticed that you had a need. Like, did a person meet your need? Yes, but why? It's because God made sure that they noticed, and then God put it on their heart to have compassion, to care, to meet your need. God is the one who provided their job and their financial resources so that in that moment, they would be able to meet your need. So every time somebody does anything good for you, you should thank that person. But you should know, thank you, but all that, that thanksgiving should actually be channeled directly to God. God, thank you that you put this person here. Thank you that you put it on their heart to meet my need. Thank you that they had the resources to meet my need. You know, I heard this one story about this atheist who uh, knew this Christian. And the Christian was really going through a hard time, and they really needed some food. And so this atheist is like, yeah, that, that person, they always try to give God credit for everything. So he goes out and he buys some groceries and he goes and puts it on their porch. And the person comes out and it's like, oh my goodness, God is so good. Thank you, God, for what you did for me. And the atheist pops out and he says, that wasn't God, that was me. And then the person responds to them and says, well, God gave it to me, but he got the devil to pay the bill. And uh, so... Anyway, I've, I've heard that story, and I, I love it. So anyway, um, every good thing that you have in your life comes from God. And here's the great thing about that verse is it says that God never changes. And so we're going to look at a psalm that talks about the nature and the character of God. And, and before we even get into it, I want to say that the greatest gift that God ever gave mankind was to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us. Jesus went to the cross. And when Jesus was on the cross, God placed the sins of mankind, all your lack of thankfulness, all the times you disobeyed your parents, all the times you were mean to somebody, all the times you told a lie, everything that you ever did, God laid on Jesus. And it says that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. See, the thing is, is that the death of Jesus on the cross was enough for everybody. But the only people who will ever benefit from it are people who see Jesus, who see who he is, who believe in him, who put their faith in him, who trust him. Those are the only people that will actually get the benefit. You know, often people think God's loving, and so all this wrath stuff is, you know, none of us are going to have to deal with that. But that's actually not true. Um, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that everybody is storing up wrath for themselves. Every day a person lives, God is keeping track of everything they ever do, and it's his anger it's his wrath. It's going to be poured out on them. And so um, the Bible tells us about people who are, will be there, separated from God forever, enduring God's wrath. But Jesus, his love is not that he lets everybody in. He doesn't. His love is that he has made a way for anybody to get in. And uh, so here's, where, here's how this all fits into this psalm. This psalm is so full of all the things that we need. Often people think about, oh, God in the Old Testament was so mean, and God in the New Testament is so loving. But one of the things you find out is that as, as you actually read and think about the Bible, the nature of God is not different in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. In fact, here's the crazy thing. If you go through all the passages in the New Testament that share the gospel, um, like the illustration of faith in the New Testament is Abraham from the Old Testament. You know, Romans chapter 3 where it talks about sin. That quotation for the gospel is actually quoting Psalms in the Old Testament. All, all the principles of salvation that are presented in the New Testament are actually found in the Old Testament. 
And so often people who never read the Old Testament don't realize that. And uh, so we're going to read this psalm, and it's just going to be awesome because I'm going to show you some of those things. Okay, so um, psalms, just so you know about the book. It's the longest book in the Bible, has the most chapters, most verses, and it was written over the longest period of time by the most number of authors. Uh, Moses wrote a psalm. David, everybody attributes psalm to David. He wrote 75 of the 150 psalms. Like there's the sons of Korah wrote some psalms. Solomon wrote some psalms. So when you look at the history of Israel, it's a collection of these psalms, and, and it was actually Israel's worship book. And so that's one of the things that we'll get from this. And uh, Psalm 73 happens to be a psalm of David. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about David, he was the second king in Israel. He was a, an amazing warrior. You guys heard John talk about how he killed Goliath. Uh, he was an amazing musician, which is why he wrote mo most of the psalms. And he was a man of faith who walked so closely with God. And he was also this guy who got off track and committed one of the biggest sins <laughs> in the Bible. Like we read it and we just go, how could this faithful, godly man do this terrible thing? And so this is David. Man, this whole scheme of life, and he writes this psalm. So I talked about some of those things, and uh, let's just jump into this, and let's start reading it, and I want to point some stuff out to you. So uh, was it page 594? I can't remember. Okay, 594. Go there if you don't have it, or Psalm 103. And it says this. Um, so the, the, first, the first thing for us to notice is in the first two vi uh, verses, and it is David calling himself to worship God. He's actually going to preach to himself. He's going to tell himself to do something. So um, this is what it says, David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O, o my soul, and forget not his benefits. Now, bless the Lord, O my soul, is only used, that phrase, the exact phrase, is only used five times in the whole Old Testament. And uh, three of them are in this psalm. And then there's two in Psalm 104, the next one. And in both of them, the, they, they appear at the beginning and at the end. And I'm sorry, it's used five. Yeah, I said five times. Okay. And um, so, so he's now saying, he's telling himself to bless God. Now, why is this a Thanksgiving psalm? Well, I want to show you one verse um, it just says this in Psalm 100, verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Blessing God is having an attitude of thanksgiving toward God. So when you think about blessing, right, God blesses people. We pray, God, please bless this person. And so when we think about blessing, we think about doing something for somebody that they need right? Meeting a need. God bless this person, pour out kindness in their life, do something good for them. If you bless your kids, I want to bless my kids with a car. I want to bless my kids with this. So when we bless people, we're bestowing something. But did you know that that's never um, the emphasis of it when it's talking about our attitude toward God? You ever think about that? Bless God. Like, what are you going to do for God? Um, do you remember when uh, Paul's preaching about God and in Acts chapter 17, he just says that God needs nothing. It's that God's not like, it's not like he needs anything you have because everything you have, God gave you. So the only thing that we can do to bless God, it's this attitude of appreciation, of thankfulness, this attitude of love toward God. So we bless him in the sense that we're thankful for him. We're just saying, God, you are so good. I am just so thankful for you. Man, I just bless you because of how much you've blessed me. So that's one of the things we need to understand is that it's an attitude in our heart toward the Lord. And so we give thanks. And uh, another one, uh, another Psalm 66, 8 just says, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Part of thankfulness, part of blessing God is that we do that verbally, that it is an attitude in our heart, but that it's something everybody around us sees. And then it says, what does it say there? How does that, how does that end? And forget not all his benefits. So I want to ask you a question. <laughs> okay, the longest section in this psalm. We got two verses at the front, three at the bottom, 22 verses as a whole, everything in the middle. 
are the reasons that we're supposed to bless God. So let me just ask you something. Just think for a second. What are the benefits in your life that you have because of your relationship with God? How have you benefited from that? And do you ever forget those benefits? David's saying, don't forget the benefits. All right. So can you think of anybody in the Old Testament who forgot about God's benefits? So, so he's actually in this psalm. He's going to make a, a reference to Moses. And I just think about of the people in the Old Testament that forgot about God and that forgot about his benefits. It's Israel, right? Have you ever read the story of the Exodus how God takes Israel out of Egypt and there's all these things that happen and God's done all these incredible miracles, how he totally just destroys Egypt. And he destroys Egypt because they've enslaved his people. And so God sees it. He remembers them. We're going to come back to that word later too. But he remembers them and he takes them out of Egypt. And he's just done all these miracles. And just as he's taken them out, they get to the Red Sea and they're kind of stuck there because there's this big body of water and they can't get away and they're looking and there's Pharaoh. He changed his mind. He's bringing his army to destroy them. And as that happens, what do they do? Like they forget the benefits of being God's people. And they start saying, oh, this is terrible. God brought us out here to kill us. And, and that's like the whole story of Numbers and Exodus is Israel constantly forgetting who God is and what God's going to do for them. And um, one of the things I think is crazy is we always talk about how dumb the Israelites are, right? Has anybody ever heard that? Or people talking about the disciples as you hear sermons. Oh, Peter was so dumb. This guy was so dumb. Or, you know, we talk about these people. Oh, they're so dumb. What I think is hilarious is as we have those attitudes toward people, if we just took a step back, we'd realize we do all the same stuff. And um, think about how thinking about the benefits of being in a relationship with God would have affected the people who were scared of Pharaoh's army. See, they were scared. They were miserable. They were full of anxiety. You ever felt that in your life? Now, if they would have thought about the fact God does amazing miracles, like think about what he just did, getting us out of Egypt, all these plagues. Their attitude would have been to sit there and go, this is awesome. I get like the greatest view of history. I don't know what's going to happen, but something amazing is about to happen, and I get to be here and see it. Instead of being stressed out and upset and worried, they would have been kind of excited. Like if you could push a button and go back and watch the crossing of the Red Sea and the army and the chariots and the wheels wobbling and then everything coming in on them and everybody drowning and God doing this amazing thing to save Israel... If you could, like, push a button and be there for that, would you do that? Like, if while Israel was all scared on the side of the mountain, while, while Goliath was hurling these insults at Israel, if you could right now, like, having read the whole story, push a button and be there and watch David kill Goliath, wouldn't you want to be there? Like, that'd be better than anything. But what's crazy is that actually that's your life. That is your life every day. God doing amazing things, amazing miracles, and you don't know the end of the story before you face it, but God's doing these awesome things, but we forget about all the awesome things God has done in our past, and so we don't often bring that with us, and we should, right? So that's this psalm. So let's think about what are the reasons that we should dwell on and praise God about Dwell on the reasons to praise God. So uh, let's start by looking at verse 3, and 3 through 5. And I want you to notice this, that David's telling himself to bless God. And then if you think about this, I want you to notice it's going to talk about who God is. So verse 3, who forgives all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that youth is renewed like the eagles? You know, the thing to notice in this poetry is it's talking about the nature 
and character of God. Now, I want to explain something about Hebrew parallelism, okay? So it says, who forgives all your iniquities? That's the first half of the verse. And then the second half, who heals all your diseases? Like those things are parallel. They communicate about each other. And so this is actually not a promise that God is going to necessarily forgive every or, or heal every single sickness that you have. Like, does that happen in life? I mean, it doesn't. And if it did, faithful Christians would never die. Because even when people get old and they die of old age, like something in their body stopped working. And so it, that's not saying that everybody is always going to be healed of everything. But there is this connection between sin and disease and sickness, right? I mean, before Adam and Eve sinned, nobody would have died. But sin and sickness are connected. In fact, sin and death are proof that we have sinned against God. If, if nobody got sick and nobody died, then we would know, okay, maybe sin's not real. But we know sin's real because people get sick and people die. And Jesus, God himself, is the solution to that. Who redeems your life from the pit? That's, that's a, a reference to Sheol when you're just, your death, it's, it's just this terrible thing. And God crowns you who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. You know, um, have you ever met somebody and you've just thought, okay, how old is that person? Like, this has happened to me where I'll meet somebody and I'll think to myself, uh, you know, you're maybe 60, 65 years old. And then as you talk to the person, you find out they're 35. Um, you want to know uh, one of the places I see that happen? The, 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 I think in the, the area where that happens to me most. When I'm talking to homeless people, um, people who have just lived a hard life, they've suffered, they've taken drugs, they've been out in the weather, and it's like their skin is just old because of the sun, the weather, the cold, um, their, their, their body. It's like they've just lived such a hard life that they look old. Um, have you ever met somebody who's gone through a really hard time in their life? And, and you'll see them like maybe two or three years later after they've just gone through this huge struggle. And when you, when you meet them, you're just like, man, it looks like you've aged 10 years in the last two years. And, and sometimes what happens is as people go through hard times, it ages them. And, and what God is saying here is God is just saying when he talks about himself, he just says, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So eagles, sometimes they molt, they lose their feathers, and they get new feathers. And, and God is just saying that one of the things that he does is he takes people that life has been hard on them. Man, they've been beaten down, and he is so good to them that he makes them feel young again. Um, and so that's, that's what's happening here. Um, so that's who God is. So it's what he's doing, but it's what he's doing that is flowing out of his nature and his character. Um, the, verse 6 through 10, it's a focus on actions. See how poetry is working here? David's telling himself something. Then he's talking about who the person of God is. Now he's going to talk about what God is doing. Look at this. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So if you've read about Ben, all of a sudden, all that stuff about the Exodus and all that stuff, boom, it just comes flying into this psalm in your mind because he's making reference to that. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you know where that comes from? Like that's a psalm. It's talking about God's goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his steadfast love. Like that just is like this solid thing that never goes away. You know, that comes from um, Moses' view of God where God talks about himself. Does this, I mean, <laughs> God's loving in the New Testament but not in the Old Testament. Like we don't get that, right? Not reading this. Look what it says in Exodus. The Lord, Moses prays. He says, God, I, I want to see you. And God says, well, nobody can see me and live. So he takes Moses, he sticks him in this rock, and then God says that he passes before him. 
and he shades Moses so he gets a glimpse of who God is. But this is who God is. This is what God says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right? God forgives. He's this good God who who's, doesn't want to be angry, who's, who's like just withholding that anger and who forgives people, but it ends. Who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. People's only hope of not being punished is through the death of Jesus. And so this does talk about that, just like the New Testament does. And so just talking about how God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. You'll notice that when the Bible talks about God's love in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it doesn't say that he doesn't have anger. But it says that God is loving and has this disposition of grace and kindness and forgiveness. And even in that, actually you don't understand God's love and you don't understand forgiveness if you don't understand his holiness, if you don't understand what you deserve, if you don't understand what God has saved you from, you actually will have a very small view of God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And so all the places that they, they try to rip out of the Bible all the things that God says about how he's holy and how he judges, they try to rip all that out because they want to say, well, we want to we just talk about how God's loving but what they do is they dial God's love from 10 back to 1 because they rip out the context of what that is. And so here we see um, the goodness and gracious and love of God. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our own sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Hey, isn't that awesome? <laughs> hey, you've done lots of things wrong. You know, this is the crazy thing about all the stuff we do wrong is we don't actually even realize half the stuff we've done. Now look at this next section of verses, verses 11 through 13. There's going to be this contrast where God's going to tell about himself by comparing with other things. So let's look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. You know, as high as the heavens are above the earth. You know, it's crazy. You remember like, uh, I think it was Galileo who counted all the stars. Like he actually wrote down how many there were. I'm just like, sometimes I'm counting things and then somebody will move. And I'm like, okay, I got to recount. So can you imagine a guy who was so diligent and careful to count all the stars and feel like he didn't miss any? But what do we know? He had no concept of how many stars there were. Um, if the most powerful telescope that we can have, like we can't see the end of the universe. And God's steadfast love is higher than that. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Okay, so God's good, right? Good to who? Good to people who fear him. That's going to come up more times in the psalm. We need to think about that. Here's verse 12. You know, there's like three, like there's like, there's a ton of verses on forgiveness. But I would say if I had to list the top four verses on forgiveness, three of them are in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 25, I even I am he who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So if you ever sin and you think, oh man, I sinned over and over, I don't deserve to be forgiven. Well, then you just think about that verse because God doesn't forgive you because of what you deserve. He forgives you because of himself. And so you're just like, oh good, I don't deserve it, but I don't need to. Man, that is so awesome. That's in the Old Testament. There's another one that talks about how our sin is buried in the deepest sea. That's in the Old Testament. And then a third one is right here. Look at this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
you know, if God said north and south, you can get north. You could actually go to the North Pole and stand there and you would be north. And every direction from you would be south. You could get south. And hey, north and south, man, they're pretty far away. But you could get there. When you think about east and west, it's infinite. You can go east as long as you want. You never get east. You can go west as far as you want. You never get west, right? It's infinite. And God right here is saying that he has infinitely separated our sin from us. He's removed our transgressions. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You know, dads, not all dads love their kids (laughs) the way they're supposed to, right? Um, There's a lot of people who, when they think about their dad, they don't think about this compassionate, loving dad. You know, as when I was parenting my kids, I actually thought about that a lot. You know, the Bible does say, I thought about Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And I thought, okay, so if I love my kids, I'm going to discipline them. A lot of parents don't realize that. That's part of loving your kids. But I also thought about the fact that my kids need to feel and sense my compassion, my care, my love, my forgiveness. Because as they grow up and as they think about that, it should be a picture of who God is. That they would think, yeah, you know, no matter what problem I had, I could go to my dad and I could tell him. And I know he'd help me. No matter, my my dad would do anything for me. Um, and, And I know he loves me enough to do things I don't like, like discipline me and like saying no to things but I know he's compassionate, he's soft-hearted, he's not going to be hard on me. And one of the things I thought about is I want to help my kids, and obviously I did not love and was not compassionate to my kids as much as God is to us. That was actually something, those are things that I had in mind. The same way I discipline you when you disobey God, he's going to discipline you. And in the same way that I'm compassionate and that it's, it's never too late to say you're sorry, it is never too late to be forgiven, I want you to feel that because my relationship with you is informing who God is in your life. And then my kids have to read the Bible and go, well, yeah, Dad wasn't perfect and he didn't do all this stuff right, so I know it's kind of like Dad, but not really much better than Dad. And so we all have a responsibility to read the Bible and to know what God says. But that's this comparison. Think about the most loving, gracious dads. God's like that to us. To who, though? It says at the very end of that verse, to those who fear him. Um, What do you think fearing God means? What do you think that is? So I was thinking about Um, The word for fear in the Old Testament um, can be translated reverence. It can also be translated terror, terrified. And uh, think about Israel, right, when God's giving the Ten Commandments and he's up on the top of the mountain. And Israel sees that and God's like he's giving these instructions and he's saying, make sure nobody gets too close and touches the mountain. If they do, I'll kill them. Make sure nobody looks up and sees me. If they do, I'm going to kill them. And, and people had this terror, right? Remember when Isaiah sees God? And uh, Isaiah is just like, he says, woe is me, I am undone. Um, do you remember John, like Jesus' buddy? You know, Jesus is like, um, he's in the Last Supper. Jesus is sitting there and John's like laying on his breast saying, hey, Jesus, who's going who's gonna to betray you? You know, it was like they were buds. And then you read the book of Revelation and John sees Jesus And he's so terrified, he falls down like he's dead. So that is an element of reverence for God. But we also know that we're not afraid of God. In fact, Hebrews says that we boldly approach the throne of grace. Because of Jesus, we don't have to hide from God. We run to God. And so reverence is like this understanding of love It's understanding of what Jesus has done to bridge the gap between our sin and God. And so so that's like reverence. And the Bible says this in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, 
fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so part of our thinking toward God needs to be a sense of respect. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to tell a story I should definitely not tell. Um, so <laughs> my kids recently told me, they've talked about this a few times, how they were in this store and some kid was like, they yelled at their parents, they disobeyed their parents, they had this terrible <laughs> attitude. <laughs> and one of my kids comes to me and goes, man, my butt clenched when I, when I, heard, when I heard that kid talking to his parents because I just thought about what would have happened to me if I ever talked to you like that? You know what? My kids knew that I loved them, but there was also a sense of reverence. You don't mess with dad. You don't tell dad to shut up. You don't ignore dad when he asks you to do something, or that will not be an enjoyable experience for you. <laughs> and that's how it is with God. We know that God loves us, but we... <laughs> I shouldn't have told that story, but that's all right. Okay. So fear is having reverence for God. It's understanding that he loves us, he cares about us, but we don't mess with God. And uh, let's look at the next one. God compares himself to us. Like think about this, and this is gonna be really good. You're gonna like this. Because it says this in verse 14, it says he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that you are weak, that you are dust that just blows away, that you are, you are nothing. For as a man, um, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows no more. Okay, go 2,000 years ago and find some grass from the day of Jesus. It's not there. Um, this reminds you of actually James, like Jesus' earthly brother, half-brother, talked about this, how people are temporary, rich people are like, they're like a, a little flower that appears for a little while and then it's gone. And it just says God remembers that we are dust, that we're like these plants, we're like grass, we're like a flower that's just going to dry up and blow away. And then it says this in verse 17, it's this contrast. So that's us, we're weak, we're, we're temporary verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It's eternal. On those, on who? On those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, that's grandkids. You know, there's generations of blessing that come from people who love the Lord. To who? Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So this is the thing I think about. God remembers that we're dust, that we're temporary. Have you ever, like, broken something because you didn't think about how fragile it was? <laughs> like, when you come home, it's like I remember when we brought Julianne home from the hospital and Jessica was sitting there and she wanted to hold Julianne. Me and Michelle are, like, standing around her. We sit her down on the couch. We say, be really careful how you touch her. And then we put Julianne in her hands. and We're making sure she didn't get dropped or hurt. It's because Jessica might not realize how fragile Julianne is. You might pick something up and kind of be careless with it and not realize and break it. But God doesn't ever do that to us. He's considerate. He thinks about us. He is aware of our weakness. So God considers our, how fragile we are. He's careful with us. He's considerate. But then you compare that to him who he's everlasting and he's so good. Um, this whole idea of remembering, that is a really interesting thing. How is it that um, God could remember something? Isn't God all-knowing? <laughs> like, do you think God ever goes like, oh, you know, that's right. I kind of forgot about that, but I just remembered this. Do you think that ever happens to God? See, we might forget something and then remember it later. Somebody might remind us. But whenever, this is an interesting thing in the Bible, whenever it talks about God remembering, he always does something. So I, I just went through the, a list of these verses. And uh, one of the things is that, uh, I'll give you a few examples. Noah's in the ark, right? He's been in there for a long time. And it says God remembers um, 
he remembers Noah and the ark, and then wind blows over and dries up all the water. God remembers Abraham and then gets Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He remembers Rachel, and that's when Rachel gets pregnant. He opens her womb. He remembers Abraham and then takes Israel out of Egypt. He remembers um, Israel, whenever they blow this trumpet, like God told them in Numbers when they were wandering around that they should blow a trumpet. And it says, whenever they blow the trumpet, God remembered them and defended them from their enemies. Um, he remembers Hannah, and then she gets pregnant with Samuel. So every time God remembers, he, it's because he's going to do something in your life. And that's just such a cool thing. And God is good. Look at verse 17. But the steadfast, of the, Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. You know, part of having a relationship with God is that we obey. It's that we remember him. You know, the Bible says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey me. See, sometimes people think, oh man, God's mad. I better do some good stuff so I can get into heaven. Well, the Bible tells us actually that that never works. But we do good things and we obey him and we remember to keep his commandments because we love him. And then look at verse 19. Another reason we're thankful for God. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all the earth. You know, one of the reasons we are so thankful for God is because he does not need us. He does not need your money. He doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need your ability. You have nothing that you could give God. He needs nothing. You know, I've heard people say, God was lonely in the universe. It was just Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, the Trinity. They were there forever, and they were kind of lonely, and they just wanted to make some people that they could love and that would love them. Did you know that is not why God created people? He did not have eternal needs that he was trying to meet. God has no needs. Um, you know, God didn't want to be alone in eternity, so he sent Jesus to die so that he could have some people in heaven. Wrong. God needs nothing. He is the king. He is in complete control of everything. And God loves you for his own glory. It's kind of like that, uh, Isaiah 43, 25, that God forgives for his own sake. And then here's the end. <laughs> okay good short Thanksgiving message, right? We'll wrap it up here so you can get some food by Thursday. You probably have some stuff you got to do because we can go on for a long time now. Um, you know that I love this last part. It challenges us to join the angels in praising God. And one of the things is this guy's going to tell himself, David is telling himself, bless God, oh my soul, all that's within me. And then he's going to end by talking about the angels blessing God. I want you to think about this and just, just why do you think that he's going to talk about angels and how they relate to God and how, why is that, why should that impact you? So let's just read this. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. So what do angels do? Man, they, they bless God. They're worshiping God, right? Um, in Isaiah, it's like you have these angels that just surround God and they sing praises and they just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. I mean, angels are praising and worshiping God, but it says also that they are mighty and that they do his word and that they obey the voice of his word. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, that's his servants. And by the way, the angels serve you. You know, you have a guardian angel. You have an angel that, that, that is taking care of you. There are stories in the Bible about how, like Daniel prays to God and God gives a message to an angel and then says, go tell Daniel. 
And so like these angels are ministering spirits that God sends out in the earth to care for us. And we don't worship them. We don't worship the angels. Like they just do what God tells them to do. But there's the, they're, they're these beings that, that they minister to us. And they do his will. Verse 22. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. <laughs> like God's in charge of everything. And then he ends with this, bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, if the angels who are looking at God face to face and they're in his presence, if they're worshiping God, if they are blessing God, man, you and me should, right? Because right now things are kind of veiled. Like there's people that live their life and they don't have this sense of a, a full view of who God is. Like it's like veiled and they're blinded, but none of the angels wonder what God is like. And if they're serving and if they're obeying and if they are blessing God, shouldn't we? Okay, so um, I hope that was all helpful to you. As you head into Thanksgiving, um, I hope you enjoy eating turkey and all the stuff that I think people should eat at Thanksgiving the mashed potatoes, the stuffing, the gravy. I just love it. All the stuff that makes you fat, except the turkey, but, but everything else. And it is just so good. And I hope that you enjoy spending time with your family. But I would just say that we've totally missed it. If we can get through this Thanksgiving season and not be mindful of God's goodness, of God's kindness, of God's compassion to us. And if we can get through Thanksgiving without training our kids to think about who God is, to respond rightly to who God is, if, if we go through this Thanksgiving season and God is not a primary element of it, we've made a huge mistake. And the truth is that you're robbing your kids and you are robbing the people around you of the greatest possible blessing. And that is to see God for who he is, to be thankful for him, and to trust God in every part of life. So here's the good news. I hope everybody here has a good, clear view of who God is from the sense of like your eternal destiny, that you have a right relationship with God. I hope that is true for everyone in here. But here's the great news is that if it isn't, that can change in a moment. And it's actually more important, like your standing before God is actually more important than anything else in your life. And so uh, let, me pray, let me pray for you. This is a great psalm about who God is and thanksgiving. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the greatest gift that you've ever given. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your indescribable gift. And that is that when we sinned, when we rebelled against you, when we ignored you, when we were unaware of who you were, when we were just generally thankful, but we didn't actually see your goodness specifically displayed to us, Lord, when we were missing those things. In fact, your word says even when we were sinners that you sent Jesus to die for us. God, I just thank you for that. And um, God, I just pray that you would help us to live out our thankfulness for your kindness, for the way of salvation that you've made in your name. Amen.